Hi everyone, thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the Sabbath School Commentary. Our lesson study this week is entitled Restless and Rebellious. Now I'm going to do something different this week than what I usually do when I host the commentary. And that is, I'm just going to focus with you on the text of scripture that the lesson studies. Okay, so be a bit different. We're just going to dive into the texts and then we're going to extract some insight and some application from the text of scripture that the lesson is studying this week. We begin our study in Sunday's lesson, which is entitled Restless in a Wilderness, in Numbers chapter 11, and we're going to read together verses 1 through 15. So this is Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. Once again, the whole lesson is, is entitled Restless and Rebellious this week. And now we're in Sunday's lesson, reading Numbers 11, verses 1 through 15. It says, Now the people became like those who complain of adversity, in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. So the people of God here in verses 1 through 6 are expressing ingratitude for what God is providing for them to eat in the wilderness. They're wishing that they had the food that they used to enjoy in Egypt. Now verse 7. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones, or beat it in the mortar, and boil it in the pot, and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. We're going to see this in just a bit, but if we reject what God provides, we're in effect rejecting God. Now, God is being intentional. He's prescribing a diet for his people for a reason. He's not just haphazardly thinking, well, what will I rain down from heaven on them? It could be this, it could be that. No, God is intentional and he has a purpose in providing only manna for the people of Israel to eat. And I'd like to suggest that purpose was to help them to develop mastery over their tastes over their urges and impulses. And if they could discipline themselves, if they could discipline their palate, th that would help them as a people when they inhabited the promised land. A person who can't control their appetite is a person who can't control a lot of other things in their lives as well. And so he had physically freed them from Egypt, and now he wanted to free them from slavery to appetite. And so he was giving them a diet that was healthy, it was nutritious, and it sounds from its description like it tasted good and you could do a lot with it but the people were sick of it they just didn't like it and so they were slaves to appetite and they preferred they, they, strangely enough it was as if they enjoyed how they were being cared for in Egypt <laughs> they were more concerned with what they got to eat than they were with freedom and so they, they would give up their freedom to go back to Egypt and eat the food that they had in Egypt even though they were slaves in Egypt Strange. There's probably lots of reasons why God did this, but that's one reason, to give them an opportunity to master their appetite and 
to learn the lesson that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Trust God, receive what he gives you for your good, and, uh, and believe in him. You know, further to this, what we eat is often, food is, is, is really important. And you know, certain cultures have certain kinds of food. And you, over time, in a certain culture, in a certain people group, to identify yourselves with the food that you eat. And so that's another reason why God would have prescribed you know, manna, or given just manna in the wilderness, because the people, they would have had a, a psychological, it'd be like a, a connection in their minds between the food that you eat in Egypt and the experience that you lived in Egypt. And you know, they needed to Egypt fully out of themselves. And one of the ways that could be done is just eat different diet, a plain, simple, God-given diet. They were to learn to eat to live rather than living to eat. So this is the challenge that these people are dealing with here. So we go on to read in verse 10. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway, of, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth, that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it's too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal this way with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, don't let me see my wretchedness. God's put Moses in a position that's deeply troubling him. He's feeling wretched, and it's because he's incapable of providing for the people what the people are demanding. And so it's, he's inadequate to help these people. And so he's, God, just let me die. I'd prefer to be dead than have to deal with this circumstance. These grumbling, complaining, whining people who are ungrateful to, to God and are rejecting and despising what God has sent. In a way, this is a foreshadowing of, of Jesus who was despised and who was rejected and who said of himself that he was the bread of life. And so God frees us and he brings us you know, out in a sort of wilderness experience where we're pilgrims and strangers and we're sojourners in this world and we're marching to Zion, heading towards the promised land. And God is disciplining us and training us and teaching us that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the manna that he gives us from heaven is the son of God. It's the word of God. And we're to live on the words of God and be contented by the word of God and not live to satisfy our urges and our impulses and be slaves to our bodies. Obviously, God wants us to, to have life and to have it more abundantly. He wants us to enjoy life to the full. But slaves to vice and to instinct and to urge and to impulse are not those who can really enjoy life. They're just slaves to their urges. And so God was trying to teach the Israelites and he's trying to teach us all how to be free. He gives us his son to satisfy our souls, to satisfy our minds. And, uh, and oftentimes we find ourselves despising the bread of life and wanting what we had when we were in Egypt, coveting uh, slave food and the things that satisfy slaves. And surely there's nothing wrong with onions and tasty food and luscious, delicious food. But there is something wrong with making that your master, where it controls you 
and it determines how you feel and all of that. Yeah, it's real powerful lessons found in this section of scripture. So this is what's going on. And now we're going to see God's response to this grumbling, whining, and complaining in the wilderness. These rebellious actions of the people. Verse 16, So the Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it alone. Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat, for you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone might give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Oh, really? Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, or two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why? did we ever leave Egypt? Now you see, explicitly stated what I said before, and that is that in rejecting what God had offered, they were rejecting God himself. So in saying, in repining over the fact that they were no longer in Egypt with the food that they got to enjoy in Egypt, God was saying, okay, you're, you're rejecting me by weeping before me and whining and complaining that you're not getting the food that you want to eat. The people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot, yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered from them? Now, this is Moses' response to this. Like, where do we get all this food? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. God caused quail to fly into the camp every day. And the people ate a ton of quail. So just to, for the sake of time, we'll continue to read here. But basically God just supernatural. He superintends the situation and guides quail into the camp of the Israelites. And yeah, they have meat to the full. They get to eat all the bird that they want. And, uh, and a plague accompanies their eating of this meat. And so it's a terrible, tough and difficult situation. There's a really interesting lesson to me here in this. And that is that you ask God for something, he gives you what you want, and you realize that you probably shouldn't have asked for it. The outcome is not the one that you'd hoped for. So in the desperate attempt to satisfy your craving, you end up putting yourself in a position that's worse than you were in before. And so this is a simple analogy that'll make emphasize the point. I used to smoke cigarettes and I quit smoking cigarettes when I gave my life to Christ. And that was difficult for sure. It was, the, it was the most difficult addiction to let go of, strangely enough. And it was tough. But anyways, let the smoking go. And there, there were probably six to eight of my smoke-free life where I would smell cigarette smoke or see someone smoking and have that kind of deep internal longing for cigarettes. And probably that's because of the impressions upon my physical brain, brain patterns and waves. Anyway, so yeah, like... I could have gone out. There were, there were probably two or three occasions where I, was, I went out cigarettes, like in moments of weakness where I was like, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm not satisfied with my walk in Christ. I'm not doing well in my relationship with God. I'm not connecting with him through his word or through prayer or having regular time of worship 
in my personal life with God, and so I'm, I'm getting weak. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. He's the vine, we're the branches. And if we abide in him, we'll bear fruit. But if not, we can do nothing. I'm just in one of those dry, desert, wandering places, and I'm feeling unsatisfied, and I'm coveting the times of the past, the music, the friendships, the lifestyle, the habits, the luxuries, the exquisite feelings that are produced by the drugs and all those kinds of things. And so I go out, turn on the old music, drive down the highway smoking a cigarette, and then just feeling absolutely sick about it because cigarettes are, are completely and totally disgusting. And so that's analogous to what the Israelites are going through here. You're like, oh yeah, you want it? Yeah, yeah, you have it. How do you like it now? It's not so nice. And something else too, it, I've found as a person that you can have the most delicious meal in the world every single day and eventually it's gonna become normal to you. It's just gonna become the same old. And so food, satisfying our urges and our appetites, never really satisfies. We only find temporary satisfaction in the fulfillment of our desires, right? Now, we have natural desires, they're natural and they're good. But when we make those natural desires our God and think that in the satisfaction of our urges and impulses, we're gonna find you know, lasting peace and lasting satisfaction, we're, we're deceived. And so we pursue a certain lifestyle, certain pleasures in this life. We become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And we think that we're gonna find satisfaction in that. And we go from pleasure to pleasure, from drug to relation, to sexual practice, to whatever enjoyment this world has to afford us. And we only find temporary fulfillment and satisfaction. It's empty, it's vacuous. And it's like the book of Ecclesiastes. Like, you know, the river continues to flow in the ocean, but the ocean is never full. It's just, the man, is, the eyes are never satisfied. The, the stomach is never satisfied. You're always gonna get hungry again. You're gonna get tired of the food you eat, these kinds of things. This is just something I've learned over life. And I think any person who really thinks learns this as well. Is tr true fulfillment and true satisfaction can only come from God and from Jesus and from the gospel and from uh, living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. A story that comes to my mind is from the New Testament on, is the story of John chapter four, where Jesus is interacting with the Samaritan woman and the disciples are off in town buying food. And when the disciples arrive back and see him speaking with the woman, they offer him food. They see the woman walking away, leaving. Jesus is sitting there and the disciples are you know, begin to question him about food. And Jesus makes that statement, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. That's not what he says, but he says, I have food to eat that you're not of. And I think this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the food that truly satisfied, the food of doing the will of God, of receiving from God his word, his life, his power, his promises, and living in accordance with that and, and knowing that's, that's what gives true life. True life. And, and Jesus indicates that too when he talks to the Samaritan woman in that conversation. And he says, if you drank of the water that I have to give, rather than just this physical water that comes out of the water. You'd never thirst again. It's all about what is the means to satisfaction. It's, it's surrender to God's will. It's denying yourself, picking up your cross and following Jesus and receiving from God the bread of life, which is Jesus, which is the, he's the embodiment of God's word, God's thoughts. And we find the articulation of Jesus in scripture. And yet we feed off God's word. We put God's word into our heart, into our mind, and then we assimilate it and practice it and this is how we, we find satisfaction. So the Israelite people, they are restless, they are rebellious, and they're not in a good place. And God gives them all that they want and, and it doesn't work out too good for them. Now, we're gonna move to Numbers chapter 12 and see 
that the grumbling wasn't just amongst the masses of Israel, it was amongst the leadership team as well. Notice this in verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. I'll stop right there. Okay, so Aaron and Miriam did not like who their brother had married. They didn't like his wife. That caused you know, trouble in their hearts. And so they use this pretext to come at Moses. And the pretext is, hey, are you the only person that God speaks through Moses? They cover up their attack upon his marriage and him as a person with this you know, supposed concern about him presenting himself as if he's the only person that God speaks through. And so really they're indicting Moses as a person. Like, you think that God only speaks through you? Who do you think you are? On one occasion, Moses, when Joshua was jealous because other people were prophesying, said, oh, I wish the whole nation would prophesy. And so Moses is not the kind of person who asserts himself to be like the spokesperson for God. Like that, that's not him. You even remember when he was called in Exodus chapter 3, where he says to God, I can't speak. Who am I? He's the last guy who wants to be like the big public speaker who everyone has to listen to. And Miriam and Aaron are fully misrepresenting their brother. And they're saying that he wants to be like the only person who God speaks through, as if he's the only one God can speak through. And he's like, hey, and they say, hey, has God not spoken through us too? your brother and your sister. This is just a backdoor attack. They're coming through the back door. A lot of spiritual people do this when they want to attack you. They just have a personal problem with you. And because they have a personal issue with you, they've got to create like some spiritual pretext and advance these these false accusations against you that you're the kind of person that you're just spiritually proud and you just want to raise yourself up and all that. What's happening, you know, here with Moses and Aaron and, and God, God deals with the situation pretty swiftly and pretty strongly. Let's go ahead and and begin to read. Verse 4, Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam. When they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my household. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burnt against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous as white as snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam. Behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly, and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, Oh, God, heal her, I pray. So Moses is being misrepresented by his brother and his sister. They're attacking him in a backdoor type of a way because they don't approve of his relationship with his wife. And here he is interceding for them to save her from the judgment that has come upon her from God because of her own actions. This is beautiful depiction of the spirit of Christ. And so someone has misrepresented you. They have defamed you. 
and what's the appropriate response if they repent there you go Moses is interceding on their behalf not resenting them and hanging on to bitterness because of how they would have made him feel I love how it says above in verse 3 that Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth now humility is not weakness and it's not putting yourself down it's not thinking less of yourself humility is self-forgetfulness where you know you're not obsessed about yourself you're not constantly focused on yourself I've heard from C.S. Lewis he says humility is not thinking less of yourself it's thinking of yourself less that plays itself out in his intercession for his sister when she is being punished by God for her actions now just want to highlight something that's just a powerful point from this passage of scripture and that is that we see in God's communication to Miriam and Aaron different levels of prophets he says look God says this is the word of God it says in verse 6 if there's a prophet among you I'll make myself known to him in a vision I'll speak to him in a dream so he's saying there's one way that I communicate to a certain class of prophet I speak in a vision I'll speak through a dream and then he says but not with my servant Moses okay he and I have a different kind of relationship it's a different way I'll communicate with him differently than I do with the typical class of prophet he says in verse 8 with him I speak to mouth even openly and not in dark sayings and behold and, and he beholds the form of the Lord's in essence Moses is the paramount prophet of the Old Testament he definitely is a prophet he calls himself a prophet in Deuteronomy 18 15 Moses is a prophet of God but God is saying he is elevated above the rest of the prophets because we speak like friends like man to man and it's because he's faithful in all of his household and Hebrews chapter 3 says that as Moses was faithful in all his household Jesus was faithful in his but that Jesus is superior because Jesus is actually like the creator of the house <laughs> and, and as I, I mentioned Deuteronomy 18 15 in that passage Moses says look there's a prophet that's going to arise and he's going to be like me that's the one that you listen to and and that was Je that was Jesus that he's prophesying of and so Jesus he's not just like an ordinary prophet he's he speaks to God as a man speaks to his friend and he has that kind of relationship so just to make this larger point that I started off with there's different classes of prophets and this is what I see in the Bible I think it's it's valid what I'm saying and I could substantiate this pretty pretty easily Moses was the preeminent prophet of the Old Testament Jesus is the preeminent prophet of the New Testament Moses more than any figure in the Old Testament was a type of Christ and there's tons of, of, of figures in the Old Testament who are deliverers saviors and who foreshadowed the ultimate deliverer of the human race Moses is the preeminent figure and he's the prophet that God distinguishes above all other prophets and speaks to him like a man speaks with his friend and he sees the form of God and so that's something to note and then secondly prophets in the Old Testament like Isaiah Jeremiah they're what I would consider national prophets like they're the person through whom God is speaking to all of his people through right that's the voice piece of God the nation that's a national prophet Isaiah Jeremiah and then you'd have other prophets like what I would consider local prophets like in the book of Acts the daughters of Philip their local church members who have the gift of prophecy and they bring messages prophetic messages from God to the people of God so it'd be like three basic classes of prophetic voices you have the, the premier voices voices of Moses and Jesus and then you have national prophets like Isaiah Jeremiah and then you have local prophets people who have a local voice and it's a prophetic voice that God sp speaks to them through and I think that's yeah and then you see like on occasion individual 
prophesying who they themselves are not prophets. This happens to, to King Saul when the Holy Spirit comes upon him and people look at him and go, oh, he's as one of the prophets now. So he, he wasn't someone who was a prophet in the sense that he was called by God to function as a national prophet, but he, he had local prophecies to give at particular points in time and God came upon him. And so this is interesting insights from the passage of scripture. Okay, we're done. Uh, we ha- we're out of time and uh, we've considered some really cool and profound insights from scripture, some practical ones for sure. I just want to, what the lesson goes on to do is study Numbers chapter 13 and 14 and how the people respond when they get to the borders of the promised land and the 12 spies come back with a majority, with for the most part, a negative report with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. And we read in those chapters how God says to the people, okay, since you're afraid to go in and since you think that going into the promised land is going to see your kids getting killed, you guys will just die in the wilderness and the kids that you thought that were going to get killed going into the promised land are going to be the ones who inhabit, who end up entering into the promised land. And that's in effect what happens. But when the people hear from God, hey, you're not going to go into the promised land, you're going you're gonna to stay out in the wilderness for 40 years and you first generation freed slaves, you guys are going to you're going to die in the wilderness. The people are like, no way, let's go. We'll go into the promised land. And so they get up and run into the promised land to take it over. And then they get smashed by the Canaanites. And so it's just a, it's a really interesting scenario. So God's, hey guys, I'm with you. I've freed you from Egypt. We're going to move into the promised land. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be magnificent. The iniquity of the Amorites is full these people are beyond redemption. They have rendered themselves incapable of salvation. And there's nothing that even divine power can do for them. I honor their free will. They have turned themselves into an, an unsalvageable people group and judgment is about to fall. And so I'm with you. They have big giant cities. They have a lot of weapons and trained fighting men, but their strength has departed from them. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come with you and we're going to we're going to dispossess the peoples of Canaan. So let's go. And the people listen to the report of the 10 spies that is negative and they get all freaked out and scared and they want to stone Moses and they're just flipping out. And then when God says, okay, you guys are scared to, to go into the promised land and just go into the wilderness. Fine. You can go out into the wilderness. And then the people are like, no, we're going into the promised land. It's just wild, isn't it? It's, it's like when God says, go forward and follow me in faith and believe in the power of my word, they're like, no, we won't do it. And then when God says, okay, that's fine. You don't want to do it. You can just stay in the wilderness. Oh no, we'll go. So wait a second. When God said to go forward, you didn't want to go forward. But now that he's saying you're going to stay in the wilderness, you're ready to go forward. So it's no, but you missed your chance. You had your window of opportunity. God opened the door for you and he said, go through it. But you didn't want to go. And so then he said, okay, I honor your free will. No worries. Stay out in the wilderness. You're going to die there. Enjoy. And they're like, no, 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 we don't want to stay here. It's almost like when God says go, we say no. When God says no, we say, okay, we'll go. And it's just wild. Why won't they just submit to the word and the will of God? He's God. He delivered them. He saved them. And he's the one who who can win them the promised land. But they're looking to themselves, like what they can and can accomplish in themselves. And they're like, ah, yeah, we can't defeat those people. It's not about you being able to defeat the people. It's about God being able to defeat them through you. And, and then they allow fear to trump faith. And they say, no, God, we're not going to go in. They rebel against Moses. God intercedes on Moses' behalf and, and saves Moses from them stoning him. And then God says, I'll destroy those people. And then Moses intercedes for the people. And then, uh, the, then the, the judgment is pronounced. You guys are not going in. Except for Joshua and Caleb. Those two guys get to come in. And those guys get to come in because guess what? 
those guys were going to follow me fully. They were willing to go forward. And so then the people are like, all right, no, we, we change our minds, we'll go. And, and, and really ultimately what they're doing is they're following the path of least resistance. The, whatever path seems easiest, that's the path that they want to follow. And so they've not fully got God's name written on their foreheads. They do not truly love God and appreciate God. So they're unwilling to commit to him unconditionally and truly believe on him. They believe on him to the degree that it gets them an easy path or it provides for them the, the lesser of two bad paths. Or the, Yeah, so they're slaves to what's easy. And this is the mindset that's produced by being enslaved for 400 years. It's hard to make people free where they can just choose what's because it's right and to, to love what's good because it's good and just to do it and to surrender yourself to what's what's right and just and holy and that's God's leading in your life personally. And a couple things, I'm familiar with these passages, very familiar. I've you know, studied chapter 13 and 14 a lot over the years. The whole book of Numbers is a really great book. I love it. I've studied it a lot. But uh, yeah, a couple lessons and, and the book of Paul pulls this out in Corinthians. He says what I'm going to say to you, explicitly states what I'm going to share with you are lessons from this chapter. Lesson, yeah, number one, all of the people who were saved out of Egypt did not end up in the promised land. So being saved out of Egypt does not guarantee you'll be saved into the promised land. This is all an argument against the idea of once saved, always saved, or this idea that a verbal profession or an intellectual assent will save you. God has paid a ransom for all because he's not willing that any should perish. And God reconciled the world to himself. He atoned for the sins of every human being who will ever live. And in a sense, freed us all from Egypt in the person of Jesus Christ. And if we believe, then we shall be saved. But you have to perpetually believe all the way until the end. Jesus says it in, in Matthew 24. He says it in Matthew 24. I'll, I'll look up the passage here real quick. I've got it memorized, but I don't want to misquote it. L listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 about continuing on in, in faith. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Saved into the promised land. So you can endure to the point that you get out of Egypt, but you don't continue to endure until the end and then you won't be saved. Hebrews chapter three talks about this and four. And in chapter three, there's the statement that says, we are Christ's if we hold fast our confidence until the end. The whole book of Hebrews argues against this idea of making a verbal confession, a verbal profession, and then boom, you're saved forever. And in Adventism, I find that a lot of us are like once saved, always saved Baptists who presume that we're saved because we identify as saved. No, no, no. Jesus says, if any man comes after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. So simple question. If you're going to come after Jesus, you have to follow him. If you're not following him, you're not following him, right? Now, of course, your actions don't justify you in the presence of a holy God. No, 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 no. But if you're not going to follow him, he's not going to appropriate to you the salvation that he had already offered to you in Christ because you don't want it. You don't want to go to the promised land. Like you really don't want to go there. You don't believe in God to the extent that you, you'll follow him into salvation, into eternity. And, uh, and you don't want to be there. And so God's not going to force you to be there. What you want to do, if you just verbally confess and then live a life of just totally following your own urges and impulses, then all you're doing is saying, I don't want to accept the fact that I have made myself a God and how I feel a God. And I'm only going to use the God of heaven so that I can serve myself. That's not Christianity in any meaningful sense. That's false and cheap and weak. In, in the book of Jude, Jude contends against this kind of false Christianity, this kind of crossless Christianity, this 
This Christianity, which requires no real commitment to Christ or no real true belief. And he says that he wants us to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. And that there are evil men who've crept in who teach that the grace of God gives you permission to live a licentious life. You, know, you press towards the mark, you keep following, you hold fast your confidence until the end. Never being justified by works. No, always being justified. You were reconciled in God 2,000 years ago through the person of Jesus Christ, and your actions don't make you righteous before God. But God gives the robe of righteousness to those who are repenting and following and, and choosing. And if you're not choosing, you're not out, or you're not going. Simple point, but really important. You can be saved from Egypt and not into the promised land. That's a real important lesson for us. And I'll stop right here. But guys, it's been a pleasure to spend a little time considering the thoughts of Numbers chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14. I love when quarterly lessons just highlight certain passages of scripture, and then we work together to draw out really good lessons and messages from God to us and practical applications. Uh, there's a million things more that could be assessed and considered from these passages of scripture. But ultimately, may God uh, place these words in our hearts and in our minds so that, that we can be born again, not of corruptible seed, but of the incorruptible word of God that lives and abides forever. I hope that you have a blessed Sabbath in the midst of all this crazy COVID lockdown stuff and uh, you still find the Sabbath, the rest that God has afforded to us through, through his son. Yeah, God bless you guys. Have a great Sabbath school program and we'll catch you next week. Take care.